Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English at uh, McEwen University in the Great White North of Canada, and this is a series that's going to be devoted to horror films. It's uh, part of a course that uh, I'm teaching for the first time at McEwen this semester and releasing my content through the podcast as I did last term with my introduction to film course. Today we embark upon a journey into terror and horror and nightmares with the 1922 classic film Nosferatu. I want to begin by sketching an idea for you of how this course is going to proceed. We are going to be traveling across 100 years of horror, or very close to it. We're only one year off, really. I was very entranced. Uh, I was was excited about the idea that we would be looking at a century of horror. And I could have done that. I could have locked that up by going with the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But I don't really feel that uh, Caligari is as good an instance of horror early horror as Nosferatu is. And there are there are scholars who would even say like Nosferatu isn't really a horror film because the horror film didn't really exist. And I, I, I find that, you know, I'm like, really, come on, like we're dealing with monsters, we're dealing with the sort of thing that would become fixed features of the horror genre. It would be, it would be like calling the Great Train Robbery, you know, not really a Western because Westerns weren't really a thing by then. Um, but at the very least, we could say that Nosferatu represents proto-horror. Uh, and it represents our starting point in a journey that's going to take us decade by decade through horror films, horror movies. And at the end of this particular lecture, I'm going to give uh, a rundown of all the films that we're going to look at decade by decade for those who are not taking the course at McEwen. Because I know there are people who tune into this who aren't my students. My students get a course outline, they get a syllabus. But those who are tuning in from the rest of the world don't. But I want to jump into the content of Nosferatu uh, first. I want, I want to spend my time there, and then we can do that as an afterword. Uh, Nosferatu is roundly considered a classic of uh, horror. Uh, Pauline Kael, she's a film critic in the 1970s, said that it was the first important film, first important film of the vampire genre. It's not the first vampire movie. There were other vampire movies before. In the, in the same way that Dracula the source material for Nosferatu, wasn't the first vampire prose. It wasn't the first vampire novel. It wasn't the first vampire tale. It was the one that put the stake in the ground or the stake in the heart and and becomes this, this moment capturing the zeitgeist, becoming part of the public consciousness. And so, you know, we got Pauline Kael saying this is the first important film of the vampire genre. The late Roger Ebert saying it is the best of all vampire movies, the best of all vampire movies. We don't want to come back to that. Uh, Werner Herzog, a great uh, uh, German director, um, most recently seen in the Mandalorian TV series, uh, believes that Murnau's Nosferatu is the greatest of all German films and uh, made his own uh, his own version of it. It's, it's, so we've got this idea that it's a classic. And if you know anything about horror, you know people are going to say, like, it's a classic. But it's not a, it was not a hit. Not in its day. It, it got very small audiences. 
and so it's this movie that has this this great critical response. It had a great critical response when it was released. There just wasn't that many people in the theaters. And so in this sense, it's almost an inverse of a movie that we're going to be looking at later in the term, which is uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And when I started thinking about these things, I, I thought it would be a great moment to just identify a way in which we we classify film just by the term that we use for it. David Bar Barsom and Richard Bronahan in their book, uh, Looking at Movies, these two professors of film studies say that uh, we've got cinema, and cinema is, is sort of reserved for the classics, things like Nosferatu, that are considered great works of, of cinematic art, we might say. They even sort of, we, we get a bit tongue-tied trying to make these, these delineations. And then you've got the movie. And the movie is the opposite from cinema. It's, you know, you've got cinema. And then you've got movies. And so you've got horror movies. Most of the time you, you hear people say, horror movies. I once saw a horror movie. You don't hear people say, I went to horror cinema. Um, but you, you hear like art cinema or avant-garde cinema. So cinema is this term reserved for the classics. Movie is for trash. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as I said, was this like inverse of the way that Nosferatu was in terms of its popularity. Critically panned. There wasn't a lot of people going, this is an incredible film. But there were a ton of people going to see it at the drive-in. And then we have uh, films, and films are somewhere in between. They're not trashy like movies, um, and they're not great like cinema, although they can be great. And The Exorcist, I think, is a good example of this because it was successful in a popular sense. It had one of the greatest box offices of film history, and but is also critically celebrated. Uh, and I just want to say right off the bat that I don't make these, these, these differentiations, but that other people do. And so we see these terms being used in this way. I just think movies are movies and they're cinema and they're film. And some are really well made and some are not so great in terms of how they're made. Um, but they can all contribute to a genre. And that's something we want to know as we're going into this course. I mean, we're going decade by decade that we're not just going to be looking at the classics like Nosferatu, but that we're going to be looking at movies like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because they contribute so powerfully to the growth of this genre that we identify by an emotion. I think that's really important and we'll come back to that uh, over and over again this term, the idea that horror is one of the very few genres that announces the emotional affect that it wants. Um, that it, it's like, you know, this is what, I want you to be horrified, right? Uh, it's very rare that, that, a, that we don't have, you know, science fiction doesn't really tell us what it wants from us. Uh, fantasy doesn't say what it really wants from us. Um, but horror comes right out and says, this is what I want. I want this emotional response from you. Nosferatu, uh, there's a few things that I want to sort of, again, sketch out before getting into some of the other discussions that I want to have is, uh, when, when people talk about it, they always talk about it, the, the director. They talk about F.W. Murnau, which, by the way, was not his real name. Not a big deal. But uh, it's all Murnau, Murnau, Murnau. And the producer of the film, Alban Grau, is spoken about a bit less. And uh, Grau is arguably as responsible for the success of Nosferatu as Murnau. This is very similar in some ways to how I see the work of the production design team for the Lord of the Rings movies. Everybody's like Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson, the director of the Lord of the Rings films. And I'm like Richard Taylor, Richard Taylor, Richard Taylor, who is the production designer for uh, the Lord of the Rings films. Because it's the look of those films is sort of authentic 
quasi-historical look, I think, that, that contributes so much to the success of those movies. Alban Grau is listed in the credits as being the set designer and the costume maker. And that's production design. That's what we call that now. We also refer to that as mise-en-scene. Everything that's in the shot is the idea there. And Grau as producer and production designer contributed easily as much to the success of Nosferatu as Murnau did. And this image that uh, you, you, you can see of, of the you know vampire looking over his shoulder, if you were to do a search for Nosferatu posters, you're often going to see this one where you've got a black sun or if, is that a moon in eclipse? And the, um, the vampire looking over his shoulder was was painted by uh, Alban Grau, uh, who was not only a really capable artist but was also an occultist and that's why i say i think he brought all this sense of darkness and and of 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 the occult to the picture the, the the contract that um is drawn up for the vampire to sign to get housing in um in the in the town that the that he moves to is covered in these supposedly these so-called Enochian symbols. But Alban Grau was part of the occult movement uh, in Germany. Um, he had connections to people who had connections to Aleister Crowley. Uh, and uh, and so there, there's this, this whole untold part, I, I think, of, of our untold role or uncelebrated role of Alban Grau and his contribution to the film. Um, I'm going to do a ton from movie to movie where I'm going to be talking about that sort of trivia, but I like to point out things that, you know, the internet will often get wrong and make a big deal about F.W. Murnau and they should because Murnau was, was brilliant. Um, but then, you know, these other aspects of the film get lost in the background and anyone who's taken a film course with me, if you've been following along with the podcast, uh, you'll know that I think that movies have a hell of a lot more going on than just the person who directed them. There's, you know, production design, there's editing, there's cinematography, so much more going on. But uh, one of the other things that is often said about Nosferatu is that the there's that Murnau and Grau and the rest of the, the team working on the film tried to sneak um, their debt to Dracula past Bram Stoker's widow. And this is a from straight from one of the intertitles. Uh, intertitles are these like subtitles that aren't subtitles. They're these plates that come in in the middle of a silent film to tell you what the characters are saying or to give you some sense of context that you might not be able to get just from the visual information. And uh, one of the opening credit intertitles says, from the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. So they weren't trying to sneak it past anybody necessarily. We don't really know why they didn't, like they tried to secure the rights, didn't work out, and he just went ahead with it, and she sued. But but there's no there was no skullduggery in terms of like they didn't you know give credit where credit was due they were saying yeah this is totally based upon Dracula uh, this is totally based on uh, Bram Stoker's novel but there's all these changes um, there are a number of similarities but there are also some some changes and so I want to give a little bit of a sense of of what you know the film uh, is about uh, even though I assume that everybody who's listening along should have seen it. I, I assume my students at the very least have seen it. Um, and you, th- this film and every film in the course is accessible through, um, uh, services like, 
iTunes. Uh, I priced it out on iTunes the other day. It would cost you about $150 to buy all the movies. Certainly a lot less to just rent them. Um, but they're all there. Uh, so the features that, that the, the film shares with Dracula is the journey of, uh, a character in this film rendered, uh, with the name Hutter. This is a Jonathan Harker character from the Bram Stoker novel who travels to Transylvania. They don't, uh, they don't make, you know, a lot of a big deal about that in, in Nosferatu. Um, but the, the, the journey to this distant land to secure a contract for this mysterious count, uh, Dracula in the book, Orlok in the film, and, and he, because he wants to move to, you know, the city. And we get a number of these initial seminal iconic moments that will appear over and over and over and over again in classic you could say classic, but they also in much cheaper um, derivative vampire films where we've got the character and, and monster films in general. You know, the lead character coming along and the, the, you know, the illiterate, uneducated peasants going, ooh, you better not go up to the house, the castle, don't go into those woods, all of those sorts of things. And, and we see that very early in Nosferatu, and that's derived from Stoker. Uh, the arrival of Hutter slash Harker at the castle meeting Count Orlock. And I'm just going to stop doing the, the back and forth with Stoker. I'm just going to say these are, these are the similarities between um, the narratives. So we have a sense of, of that, that similarity and what Nosferatu was drawing from that. Arrives at the castle, realizes after having had his blood sucked a little bit and then a little bit more and ha having seen the, the count in, in, in the, in the night and he's terrifying. Uh, so he, you know, Hutter goes and he explores the castle and he finds the count's, um, coffin where he sleeps. Um, but the count, uh, traps Hutter in the castle and departs for the city where he now has property uh, right across the street from where Hutter and his wife live. And then the film cuts to the wife. Um, and this uh, is not all of the film, but these are just some of the, the, the high points, things that we need to know about. And like Stoker's novel, we find her overlooking the ocean, uh, awaiting the return of her beloved, of, of her husband, uh, although it's a, it's fiance in, in Stoker. And uh, she waits for him, but uh, what arrives instead of the fiance is uh, is the vampire, um, and and arrives on a ship just like in Stoker, and the crew's all dead, and you know enters the city, and in his his arrival is heralded by this sort of inverse John the Baptist character of Renfield, who is uh, Nock in Nosferatu, uh, played with. <laughs> incredible overacting gusto uh, by Alexander Granick. Um, and I can't help but think that he was definitely one of the touchstones for Tom Waits when he played Renfield in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Um, really, really over the top, waiting for the master to arrive. We get moments of sleepwalking from uh, Ellen Hutter's wife, uh, which again, are, these, these are elements pulled from Stoker's novel. The difference here is that there's two women in Stoker's novel and they've been amalgamated into a single entity for Nosferatu to simplify the plot. Hutter does get back to the city uh, and um, Ellen speaks of her fear, of her terror, of, of this creature, of this, this sense of dread. Um, but she discovers that uh, only a 
woman, you know, who, you know, invites the monster in can, and gets it to, to suck her blood, uh, until the rooster crows twice, we'll be able to defeat it. So that, that, that is a huge departure. And we're going to kind of want to come back around to that, but there's, so many similarities between Stoker's novel and the film and that intertitle that, uh, you know, that they, they weren't hiding it, but that didn't stop, um, Stoker's widow from coming after them and lawyering up. Uh, it's not a new thing. <laughs> um, and, and suing them and winning and demanding that all prints of the film be destroyed. Now, another misconception is that all but one were destroyed, and it's this one cut that, you know, somehow this one reel that made its way uh, to today, and, and, and that's why we can see the movie now, and that's not what happened. The film was in pieces, we might say. We had a number of different prints of the film, um, and in at different points in history, there was a sense of like, how much did we have? Initially, it seemed like there were only film stills and a few um, bits and pieces of the of the reels, of the footage. Um, some of the footage was used in a film ad uh, for Universal Studios called Boo. Uh, and it's worth taking a look at how that's used because it's used in an almost, it is used in a comedic way there, anticipating to some degree how the footage from the film has been used in GIFs and memes uh, for comedic effect. But um, the film was preserved by various cuts, prints of the film, uh, some which were recut and then uh, given some more footage to flesh the film out in other ways. And one of the things that got lost along the way was the color tinting, which led people to be really, really confused by the scenes that if the whole film is just in black and white, make it look like Count Orlock can be out in the sun so that the ending is utterly confusing because to get the right lighting for the silent film, they can't shoot at night. They'd be shooting during the day and then they color tint it. It's a time-honored practice in film if you've ever seen movies made in the 1950s and 60s as color became more prevalent they would always just blue tint any scenes that were supposed to take place at night even though a modern viewer can see that and go okay i can totally tell that that's daylight and all they did was color tinted well that practice goes all the way back to the silent era and we have this color tinting where green and as uh, so sort of greenish blue is is substituted for night and we get this rich yellow for daylight or for candlelight or lamplight, torchlight, etc. And that was one of the things that got lost along the way. And so r r the restoration that you can see today is the result of pulling all these variant pieces back together, constructing as best we can what was lost when Stoker's widow demanded that all of the prints be destroyed. We know that not all of the prints were, but it, cert it certainly wasn't an issue of one print surviving. It was many prints and putting them all back together. But this consequently means that we're not really sure that the film that we're seeing today is the film that audiences saw in 1922. What we're certain about, by the way, is that the score that we're hearing was not the score that the audiences heard in 1922 it's, it's almost certain that the original score as it was played by an orchestra once is not what we are hearing when we're watching the blu-ray or the dvd um, of this film 
But this is as close as we can get to it. And it, it's it's interesting to me that there are so many films from the silent era that didn't survive, but weren't ordered destroyed. And Nosferatu survived, even though there was an order for its destruction. So I don't know if that's an issue of like, well, we know that this is super precious, so let's preserve it. Or if that's a testament, once again, to the classic nature of this film. Now, modern viewers might find it hard to watch Nosferatu and see why it was ever scary. Like the scene where they're talking about the werewolf, and then we get these shots of this hyena. And Murnau was devoted to the idea of having this hyena in the film. He really, really wanted it in there. And they had to like go to a zoo and uh, difficult shot to get. And it's not a particularly scary shot for viewers living in the age of Google image. Uh, we can, you know, type in hyena and see a hyena and know what it really sounds like and know that it's not a very strange animal. We have to remember the context of viewing in 1922 that for many audiences, they would have never seen this animal before. It certainly doesn't look like a normal wolf or a, you know, a dog. It looks strange. It looks odd to people who, who would never have seen this particular canine. So we have that, these sorts of moments where maybe we can't see why it was scary, but it may have been to early audiences. When uh, Orlok's carriage comes up to Hutter, it's done in this jerky, it almost looks like stop motion, but it's, it's, it's sped up, right? We've got this really, really fast moving carriage. And that doesn't look scary to us. It doesn't look uncanny to us. It almost looks the opposite. And part of that is that film conventions get ingrained in viewers that we begin to understand. Like, for example, that the blue tinting or the green tinting means night. And so we go, okay, this is supposed to be a night shot. That's a film convention. We don't have that as much anymore, although they still tint the shots blue to convey a sense of it being nighttime. Uh, we can now shoot at night or digital grading can make it look like it's really, really dark. But these film conventions get ingrained where if things are moving really, really fast, it looks silly to us, uh, a sense of, of the comedic to it. And so when Dracula's carriage comes up or Orlok's carriage comes up, it doesn't scare us. We don't feel that sense of the uncanny that the original audiences may have felt because we have different filmic conventions and we're, you know, so far down the road of film being able to create a hyper realism. The way that Orlok looks over the page at the one point. I don't struggle to understand why this has become a meme, why people can take this and turn this into something funny. But we have to remember that audiences in 1922 found this film unsettling. They found this film scary. Now, not everybody did, but um, there were people, there was, it, was clearly, it was clearly an unsettling and terrifying film uh, at, at, at many levels. And we continue to have people who will say that, you know, this is a classic, this is a really, really great film, but it feels, it may feel dated to us. And so one of the questions I want to address very early on is how do we watch a classic horror movie and understand it as horror if it fails to scare us? Like, how does that work? You know, if, if, if the imagery from a horror movie is being used as a meme, how scary can it really be? But we have to take it on the accounts that we have that, that people did find it scary that this was a horror film. 
the, the imagery in this film was horrific at one time. So as we come into studying horror movies, and we're going to be looking at films from the 1930s and the 40s and the 50s, and those may not be particularly scary to us, but they were to somebody at some time. And so how do we watch a movie that's so dated that it fails to scare us? And this becomes an area that's difficult for many students and teachers of classic film, classic literature. You know, a student will tell me when we read Edgar Allan Poe, uh, I didn't find this very scary. I don't know. What's the big deal about Edgar Allan Poe? Like, why does everybody think he's so scary? And I'm like, well, it doesn't horrify us necessarily, but it horrified its original audience. And this smacks of the way in which many people approach watching horror movies, and maybe this is how you watch horror movies, I'm going to encourage you not to watch horror movies in this way. I'm going to encourage you to watch in a different way. Well, what way is it that I'm um, encouraging you not to do? So people go to a horror movie and they, 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 they do this, get all tough, especially guys. Well, that wasn't scary, right? That's a common thing that I hear after a movie, especially if I've, I've really built it up and I've said like, oh, this next film that we're going to be watching is really disturbing. Well, I didn't find it very disturbing. It's, it's this macho move to show that, that you can handle it. I feel like that's like paying money to go see a comedian and then deciding you're not going to laugh. It's like watching a romance movie and deciding that you're not going to fall in love with either of the characters. You're just not going to. Like before the movie's even started, you just like, nope not going to enjoy this. If we tell ourselves we're not going to enjoy something, we're probably not going to enjoy it. And we have to pull ourselves into a space of suspended disbelief. Kevin Jackson in his BFI film classics book about Nosferatu says that Nosferatu can still enthrall a sympathetic audience, a sympathetic audience. But if we're not a sympathetic audience, then we won't be enthralled. It's going to be really, really difficult for a movie from 1922 to reach nearly 100 years into the future to the age of digital horror and scare us. But this film, according to Kevin Jackson, can still enthrall us if we are sympathetic. Well, what does that mean? That's that sim- that suspended disbelief where we're going to go, okay, I got to lock into this. I'm just going to, you know, and I, I need to look at this and ask the question, why would this have scared the people who watched it the first time? We ought to try to give ourselves over to the horror of the film. You know, if we are sitting there going, I'm going to push back and not be scared, it, there, there are few horror movies that are going to punch through that. Um, and I think it's a really, it's a really weak way of viewing horror because at some point we get, I don't know if we want to say that we get calloused towards the atrocity of horror films, but I think that at some point we've become desensitized to the shocks that, that many horror films will rely upon. And in watching at, le- at the very least classic ones. I mean, if, if they're roundly considered B-movie trash, then maybe this isn't something that's worth doing. Maybe it's too much work to get there. But for myself, I know that when I give myself over to the mood and the goals of Nosferatu, that I, I, I can get creeped out at the very least. The movie doesn't scare me. I don't find myself having nightmares afterwards. But... I can go, ooh, that's, that's creepy. That is a weird, that's an odd looking, you know, just the way that that particular shot was done. That's creepy. And, and I also call this signing the fictional contract. 
And so often when, when we begin reading or we begin watching, we don't sign the fictional contract and it, it results in us not having that moment of suspended disbelief. And so it's like, well, as if that would happen and you're in like a superhero movie or something like that, or you're in a horror movie, you're in a supernatural horror movie and you're like, well, I didn't find it very scary because I don't think ghosts really exist. <laughs> what were you doing there? Um, so, you know, here you are in a course on horror, or here you are listening to a podcast that's going to be devoted to a course on horror. What are you doing here? If not to be scared. And so we, we can give ourselves over to that, right? We can sign that fictional uh, contract uh, rather than being those fans of horror who watch horror films as, as challenge because they're moving from a position not of sympathy, but of antipathy, we might say, of indifference, of potentially hostility. And I don't know why you do that. If you're going to pay the money, if you're going to take the time to watch a horror movie, give yourself over to it, give yourself over to it. So, you know, maybe we don't see why it's a classic, but we can trust that other people certainly have. Kevin Jackson, coming back to Kevin Jackson again from his BFI film classics. And if you're like, what's a BFI film classics? Um, British Film Institute. Okay, the British Film Institute uh, publishes these wonderful little books. They're, they're you know, readable easily within a day. And, uh, you know, all good scholars should you know, say this, these are my secondary sources. These are the things that I relied upon. And I, uh, I read Kevin Jackson's BFI film classics Nosferatu book in preparation for this lecture. So he says at one point, beauty and terror are at the heart of what makes Nosferatu a classic film. So we might say it's classic because Murnau was really good at shooting landscapes. Okay. Um, beauty and terror at the heart of what makes Nosferatu a classic film. Well, that's fine. It makes it a classic film. I will grant that. I'm not going to argue with Jackson on that particular um, note. Uh, the, the vistas that we get to see, those are all really, really beautiful. But what makes it a classic horror film? Where, where does the terror come from? And, uh, we, you know, we might cite the way in which the film uses shadows. And you'll see a lot of uh, literature devoted to Nosferatu calling it a German expressionist film. Um, Jackson's not on board with that. I'm not on board with that either. Um, you want to see an expressionist movie, watch The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. There are expressionist elements in Nosferatu, largely due to its cinematographer, but I don't think that it is a purely expressionist film in the way that other German expressionist films are. In fact, it, it almost acts as a middle point between expressionism and the movements that would follow in German film at the time. Uh, we might talk about how the film generates terror through its cross-cutting, that it moves from the, you know, the moment of Hutter having these shadowy claws move up as, as, as Count Orlock comes to suck his blood. And then the film cuts, you know, using the, the art of the edit, cuts to Ellen back in their home, sh you know, getting up out of bed, like she jumps up out of bed and she's, she's in terror for her husband and that this cross cutting that the film utilizes so many times makes it a classic. And that certainly adds to its terror. That certainly adds to the feeling of horror when you move from, you know, you're worried about Hutter and then you move to Ellen and Ellen's emotions and that kind of emotional one-upmanship that editing can provide that just keeps, you know, ramping up the terror as it were the way in which the film generates suspense as as Count Orlock's ship moves towards the city and Hutter is trying to get there 
at the same time. This, this movement of cross-cutting, cross-cutting where we've got, you know, a shot of a ship way out in the middle of the ocean, and then a shot of the actor playing Hutter crossing a stream with a horse. They weren't shot at the same time. Magic of editing, cross-cutting, being able to juxtapose these images to create a singular effect. And when you watch films from the silent era, you can see that like cross-cutting was an innovation. It was a big deal. Utilizing parallel editing to create a stronger narrative, but still in its infancy. We see the cross-cutting when Orlock is across the street. I love the shot where it's just, it, you don't see Orlock unless you're really looking for him. It's this great big wide shot of the building that Orlock is in, and he's in the window, but if you blink, you'd miss it. You, you're, the eye picks up on it, and there is this sort of like uncanny, did I just see what I thought I saw? And then the movie cuts to... Ellen pointing out the window in horror. She's trying to convince Hutter that, you know, there's this dark being, this, this, this terror, this, this thing. So those are classic moves. And we can recognize those, the way in which the film is cutting back and forth between Orlock looking through the window and then Ellen's terror at the window, those moves back and forth. We can say, okay, that makes that film a classic, but that would require us to be like artful students of film. And so that's one of the things that we're going to need to try to do this semester is to understand film, not only as a narrative but also as an art form that utilizes certain techniques to convey that narrative. Lovely, lovely art of the shadow in this film makes it classic, makes it something that we can recognize when, when Orlok's hand, the shadow moves towards the door. Um, that is certainly a moment that I can, doesn't matter how many times I've seen this, I always watch that and I go, it's creepy. And it's recently been employed, I think, in, uh, in movies like The Babadook, where they're, they're taking the, this shadow play and doing something with it in modern horror because shadows are scary, right? So there, there are all those, those moments of, 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 of classic film art. The way in which shadows are used over and over again, so that when Ellen is clutched by the shadow and she grabs at her heart, we don't go, oh God, that's hokey. See, we could, right? We could do that thing where we're going to be indifferent or hostile to the way in which the film is trying to scare us. Or we can go, <gasps> because we've been built up to that, right? The number of times that the, that the shadow stands in for the actual being when when the vampire's shadow clutches its hand upon her breast, we are like, oh no, oh no, if we've given ourselves over to the narrative, right? That there's a wide shot of Orlock and then, and, and you're looking at him and you're like, oh, he looks like he's got his eyes really wide open. I mean, Max Shrek is a revelation in his performance as Count Orlock. I think there, the, the film certainly has an element of the classic that Max Shrek's performance as the vampire is so good. So good that, you know, an entire film was made on the premise that uh, Murnau didn't get an actor. He actually went and got a real vampire to, to play the role. If you ever see the movie, uh, The Shadow of the Vampire with Willem Dafoe uh, doing a wonderful performance as Orlock. I don't want to say as Max Shrek because he's playing a vampire in that case. So that we might mirror in all of these things we might mirror hutter's response at the very least we can see hutter's response we can say okay this is supposed to be scary why might it have been scary to those original audiences and so we can approach it from this this film 
studies, this film art sort of approach saying, okay, I can recognize that when Max Schreck walks through the door and that staggered shutter stop walk of his, that this is, that this is meant to be scary. Um, I can recognize that the makeup makes it scary, that the, the way that the camera is angled, there's a lot of low camera angles that are meant to make Shrek even taller than he, than he, than he is, you know, to, to give him that, that sense of great height. We might say it's a classic for the way in which it inspires so many reiterations of the things that it does. For example, Stoker's novel doesn't end with Dracula getting hit by the sun because he's been trapped. There's a great big chase scene at the end of Dracula with a with an American cowboy in it. And we don't see that in Nosferatu, but we see what Nosferatu does as a film to the vampire over and over and over and over again in later vampire movies. Later vampire movies took the idea that the vampire could be destroyed by the sun, which was not something that Stoker's vampire was that susceptible to sunlight as a, you know, killing agent. Stoker's vampire could go out in sunlight. It, it was not, it, it couldn't kill him. It was just, it was problematic, you know. But Count Orlock gets hit by the sun and he dies easily. Now, this was likely the result of, of financial constraints. This movie was effectively an independent film. And, you know, you don't want to do a great big lengthy chase scene, especially in the age before moving cameras. I mean, they could move cameras to some degree at this point, but it was a, it was a lot of work. So within the constraints of the technology of the time, how do we kill our vampire in a way that's satisfying and sunlight seems to be the way to do it. And so this film could be a classic because of the way in which it, it uh, influences later films and over and over and over again, vampires get killed by the sun, even though the original Dracula, that's not how he died. That's the way Count Orlok dies. And this moment becomes iconic. So maybe that's why it's a classic. But maybe it's also cl uh, some like when we talk about why why it horrified early audiences. Why did it scare um, the original viewers? Why was it considered terrifying to them? Uh, I want to I want us to consider Andrew Tudor's question. Andrew Tudor uh, from his essay: Why horror? The peculiar pleasures of a popular genre. Why horror? The peculiar pleasures of a popular genre. Now, at the end of this, he says, if we really are to understand horror's appeal and hence its social and cultural significance, we need to set aside the traditionally loaded ways in which the question why horror has been asked. For the question should not be why horror at all. It's, a, it's, too, it's too general, it's too broad. It should be, rather, why do these people like this horror in this place at this particular time? I'm going to read that again. It should be, rather, why do these people like this horror in this place at this particular time? And what exactly are the consequences of their constructing their everyday sense of fearfulness and anxiety, their landscapes of fear out of such distinctive cultural materials? What are the distinctive cultural materials of Nosferatu? Well, we're looking at a film that was made in the Weimar period, which was after World War I. And there is a book called Wasteland, The Great War and the Origins of Modern Horror, written by W. Scott Poole, who's a professor of history, 
who teaches and writes about horror and pop culture. And Poole's thesis is that much of 20th century horror emerges from World War I and the horror of the corpse. He talks about how France lost 900 soldiers. I'm quoting him directly here. France lost 900 soldiers every single day of the four-year war and Germany 1,300 Horror became an outlook on life rather than a new entertainment, a mere the sheer, sheer numbers of the dead. He says at one point that the numbers became unreal, that the Battle of Verdun in 1916 produced more than half the casualties of the American Civil War. What does this mean? It means that the magnitude of atrocity, death, destruction, maiming during the Great War left a significant wound, cultural wound, collective wound in the consciousness of the societies who uh, took part in that conflict. And Germany amplified because they lost. And so he makes a great deal out of the, the, the repetition of corpses and coffins, that this is the, these imagery of these things was terrifying to the viewers of Nosferatu because of the Great War, because of these excessive numbers of, of people having died. Um, both Grau and Murnau fought in the war, and in the case of Murnau, lost loved ones. Uh, Murnau had a, a one-time lover and very close friend um, who was killed in, in a, in a bloody onslaught as well. Like not just like, you know, he just died or something like that, but like through the brutality of war. And so they'd both been witnesses to it. And Poole thinks that this informs Nosferatu and there's no way that it couldn't have. I mean, I'd be, a, I'd be an idiot to say that that's not the case. We've got the repetition of the imagery of the coffin and that, that, that image of Shrek's face in, in, you know, as Orlock through the splintered, boards of the coffin when Hutter discovers him for the first time. I, that is an unsettling image. That image creeps me out. The moment that Orlock rises up out of the coffin, like stiff as a board, uh, that's terrifying, right? These, these repetition of the image of the coffin. And yes, Murnau and Grau both fought in the Great War, but I'm not completely convinced by Poole's thesis. And the reason I'm not is because the image of the coffin, while it may be terrifying for reasons related to the war, uh, I don't think this movie emerges from the war necessarily, because then what, what is Orlok? Is Orlok like some revenant version of a soldier who's now just carrying his coffin around underneath his arm? I'm sure there's a reading that could be, you know, pulled from that, but I'm not sure that it would necessarily be a good reading. And I'm not saying Poole is flat out wrong. Um, he makes a really strong argument for, you know, the, the, the way in which the Great War affected filmmakers like Murnau and Grau. But I, I think he overstates his point. That, that would probably be where I want to go with that. Uh, and to the, to the question, that we would want to answer from Tudor's essay, you know, why these people in, you know, this time responding to this horror, right? 
why did these particular people find this so horrifying? And one of the shots that I, I think is just gorgeous, it's, 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 it's one that always stands out to me when I watch the film, is when the ship carrying Orlock first enters the town and we can see the church in the background. And this is something that Jackson talks about in his BFI book, that the ship obscures the church in the background um, is, is a great moment of like evil coming to town, right? What's of greater interest to me is what is showing up in the boat, right? Yeah, there's a vampire in there, but what is Nosferatu as vampire in, you know, like what, what does it mean when we consider it against, say, Stoker's vampire? There are a lot of people who think that Stoker's vampire was meant to respond to fears of a great influx of, of immigrants to England, the fear of the outsider. Is that the same fear that Nosferatu plays on? Or is Nosferatu interested in a different nightmare? Kevin Jackson, coming back to that BFI Films classics, concedes what W. Scott Poole says in Wasteland. He says, German self-confidence had been shattered by a crushing military defeat. But then he goes on to say, there was an even greater nightmare. There was an even greater nightmare. In the popular imagination, Germany had been one of the nations afflicted by the appalling Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 to 19, which killed more people worldwide than all the guns and bombs of the previous four years. And it's Jackson's statement right there that makes me reject Poole. I can't claim to be the person who came up with this, but as soon as I read what Jackson had said, I thought about what Poole said because I'd been reading Poole and seemed really convincing. I was like, oh, yeah, it seems like a really good argument. And then I read Kevin Jackson's, you know, response in a sense. And Jackson isn't responding to Poole directly, but his words certainly do. And I'm certainly making them respond to that. That, that the greater nightmare would be the, the results of a pandemic. Something that we can at least understand a little better. And maybe that is really where we can become that sympathetic audience. If we watch Nosferatu and we recognize, you know, through a strong study of the film's technical aspects, that Orlok emerges from the ship and that that is framed very similarly to how the rats that carry plague emerge from the ship, bringing this plague that kills so many that we can equate the monster with this plague, with pandemic. And that reinforced by this, you know, man who goes around at one point in the uh, film putting a cross on doors of houses that, you know, are, you know, stay away, this is unclean, right? And there's that great intertitle at one point where it says that, that, that this is cursed dirt, that the, the vampire sleeps in cursed dirt from the fields of the Black Death. I don't think that's incidental, right? The, the, the fact that, that this is an account of the Great Death the movie says right at the very beginning, and sure, that could evoke the Great War. But when you consider that the that, that World War I was a more distant memory than the Spanish flu pandemic, again, which killed more people worldwide than all the guns and bombs of the previous four years, then I begin to see, okay, I maybe understand why this movie would be terrifying to people. And when I consider the last image of the film, well, the second last image in the film, before we get to that ruin up on, uh, up on the hill, but the, the image of Hutter bent over Ellen must have been an image that people who had lived through the Spanish flu could relate to. 
of a loved one dead. Not on the field of battle, but in the domestic space of the home. Perhaps that too is why Murnau and Grau chose the bedroom as the final battlefield between Count Orlok and Ellen. I want to note, before I move to breaking down all of the, uh, the, the films that we're going to be looking at in this series, in this course, the number of parallels between Bram Stoker's Dracula made by Francis Ford Coppola in the 90s and Nosferatu are many. Um, there's so many moments where I, I felt myself thinking, oh, this Coppola must have watched Nosferatu many, many times. I mean, just the way that Coppola's Dracula plays with shadow. There's this wonderful scene where Dracula um, is with Jonathan Harker, and they're about to sign the papers for Dracula to move to London, and his shadow reaches out to strangle Jonathan Harker while he's signing his deed. There's also a really great moment with the photograph, where we've got this moment in Nosferatu when Orlok sees Ellen in this this image that Hutter has, uh, that got mirrored in um, Coppola's movie as well, um, with a number of distinct differences. And so somewhere down the road, I think I'll have to do an extended comparison of those movies. I love Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, um, and I and I think it, it mines Nosferatu extensively uh, for inspiration. So the films. So if you want to follow along, you want to keep coming along, you listen to this one and you're like, oh, I like this. This is good. I'm going to, I want to, I want to be along for the trip. Well, here's what the journey looks like. Uh, and as I said earlier, um, I priced it out. It's about $150 to buy all of these on iTunes. They're also all available in Blu-ray or DVD through the uh, online purveyor of your choice. I doubt very much that you're going to be able to find them at your local whatever sells DVDs. Uh, right now or ever at any time because, uh, you know, they're older films. It's not, you know, like this last year's hit movie, right? So we're going to start, you know, we, we've started in the 1920s with Nosferatu. And next week we look at The Bride of Frankenstein that takes us into the 1930s and a discussion of the great universal monsters, talking about Universal Studios and their classic monsters. We think of the, you know, Dracula, the Wolfman and, and Frankenstein and the Mummy. Universal Monsters, and uh, and and the 1930s were their heyday. The Cap uh, and and in Cap People, the 1940s version, uh, produced by Val Luton and directed by Jacques Tournier, and we we're going to want to talk about that partnership and how these guys took low budgets and a ridiculous studio system and made some really really great horror movies um, that were distinct from the type that Universal had been making up until that point. The Horror of Dracula, which was just Dracula in the UK, made by Hammer uh, Pictures. Uh, and we want to look at this because to understand the 1950s, this is uh, when we've moved up in that decade, you really got to know something about Hammer Horror, bringing uh, life to the monsters that Universal had dealt with for so many years. Um, but were no longer considered scary, revitalizing, we might say, the gothic horror uh, for one last decade. We move into the 1960s by going to the drive-in um, with Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead, George A. Romero's seminal zombie movie. Uh, yeah, there'd been zombie movies before, but they weren't these kinds of zombies. And I don't even think they're called zombies in this film. Um, but they're the precursors to the zombies that uh, have dominated 
the world of horror for the last decade at least um you know the the walking dead those kind of zombies this is where it all starts um but why why is this film why is this film important um is this cheap indie film why why are we going to be white well we're you know you got to stay tuned check all that out uh but night of the living dead getting us our zombies um one of the other things i want to mention is just that i tried to hit just about every monster or subgenre of horror that i could as well so it wasn't just that i was choosing uh landmark moments from each decade but that i was also trying to uh, get you know a good sampling of, of various monsters with the only repeat being the vampire uh, between Nosferatu and Horror of Dracula. Uh, and then we go, to, we get to the 1970s. And the 1970s is, in my opinion, the greatest decade for horror yet. I think the last decade might vie for it in some ways. We've seen some really, really amazing horror films just this last decade. But time will tell which of those are the classics. Whereas we can take a look back on the 1970s and we can say, oh, we know which ones left their mark. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was certainly one of those that left their mark. Uh, a cheap indie film. It is not a great movie. I don't think. I don't think it's a great movie. But we, we got to talk about it. It is a landmark watershed moment in horror. It, it changes the way horror was done. Um, in the same way that Night of the Living Dead did. Both Night of the Living Dead and, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre share some affinities in, in that regard. The Exorcist is the other film that I chose from the 1970s because, as I say, I think it's the greatest decade for horror. Uh, I had I had the worst time in the world choosing which movies I was going to show from the 1970s. Um, but I felt like I needed to use The Exorcist because uh, it was one of the most successful horror movies of, of all time. Uh, and it was critically... Uh, praised as well, uh, as opposed to The Thing, which did terrible at the box office and was critically panned, but got an afterlife, a sort of cult following through late night cable showings and, and home video, and is now considered one of the great horror movies. It shows up on all sorts of lists, and uh, there's this one moment in the film that's considered one of the scariest scenes ever ever produced. I don't want to say any more about that. Um, but uh, what it does for us is it shows us one of the things that was endemic to the horror of the 1980s, which was the development of prosthetic makeup. So we'll come back around to that. And we get to Scream. I originally wasn't going to put anything in for the 1990s. I was just going to leave the 1990s out and say 1990s sucked for horror. You might be like, but you just said you like Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. I do. I just don't think it's a great horror movie. I think it's a beautiful film, but I don't know it's really a great horror movie. It's not a super scary movie. Um, but every time I would say that to someone who was a horror aficionado, they'd go, well, what about Scream? So finally I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to give in. We're going to take a look at Scream. And maybe just to, to finally have a bona fide slasher, although I, I think of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a slasher film, but uh, this is this is our slasher movie. But it's also uh, a meta film, right? It's a film that's, that's it's a horror movie that talks about horror movies and uh, spawned a huge franchise as well, as did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then uh, for the 2000s, we are going to do The Ring. And we're doing Gore Verbinski's version because I think it is the superior one. And you can get all enraged about how I didn't like the original Japanese version as much. But I just genuinely think that Verbinski's version is creepier. I think it's scarier. It haunted me longer. Um, 
And it allows us to talk about J-horror at the same time. So we get to talk about uh, a shift in, again, one of these watershed moments in horror uh, that that started in Japan. And then there were these, these American remakes. And then for the... 10s. I don't know what, what do we call the 2010s. Um, we're going to be taking a look at It Follows, um, which isn't a terribly old film, but already has a Devil's Advocates book uh, devoted to it. Now, this isn't the only reason I picked it. I think It Follows is a genuinely scary film. Uh, one of the few films that I've seen in a long time that creeped me out and stayed in my brain long after I had finished watching the movie. But like those BFI film classics, there's a whole series of books um, uh, from Autour Press uh, called The Devil's Advocates. And they're these, again, very small books that are close reads of horror movies. And there's one devoted entirely to It Follows. But that, that to me, is a testament that this movie wasn't just, you know, wasn't just, it wasn't just me who thought it was scary. There were these other people who did as well. Uh, and I think it does a number of things that are really, really amazing in terms of, of, of cinema, uh, in terms of what film does that other genres don't, that we can study by taking a look at It Follows. And then finally, we're going to take a look at The Cabin in woods and this doesn't follow the decade thing this is more of a way for us to review everything that we will have done by that point in the semester so i'm hoping that you will join us on this journey of terror Um, and for those of you who are my students and you're already locked in here with me we will be looking at yet another revenant corpse not a vampire but the frankenstein monster uh, and his bride-to-be next week with The Bride of Frankenstein. See you then.